you fall into the theology bit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not like a bottomless pit where you die of dehydration and starvation, probably dehydration first, but this is a theological pit. This is where you will stay fed. We're going to give you lots of stuff to think about, and we're continuing on with our understanding of salvation and what it means to be saved and how the church has viewed it over time. Now, from the last Theology Pit, um, we discussed a lot of the conflicts that were going on externally and some internally within the church. And I hope it wasn't too bad for anybody to listen to and anybody to listen through. It was very historical and kind of my views on why I think things were developing the way that they were and how we get some stuff today. But... Uh, I think today's going to be a lot more fun. I'm really going to dive into it. We're going to look at um, the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to look at the um, understanding of what Jesus is and who Jesus is and, uh, you know, what God is and who he is, that sort of thing. And we may even get into some uh, understanding of free will and original sin. If I can get to it in time, I'm going to try my best to do it. But I do want to take my time in, in doing all this. I have no reason to rush. This is my podcast. The Theology Pit is my creation of the way I want to go about explaining theology and explaining the church to people listening, just the average person and uh, perhaps the academic also. But it's a lot of it is really for me. It's I, I like doing this and... Uh, you know, when I've done like interviews, like on the radio or, or you know, different uh, discussions I've done, I've always been limited to time. And I don't like that because I feel I got to rush and I got to talk really fast and I got to say all these different things and I got to make sure that everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about and let's move on. And there's no time to really sit back and digest and get a good understanding of what's going on. So the theology pit is kind of my place to decompress and to discuss these things. And I've, I've been considering lately, um, this is the fourth uh, big theology pit uh, podcast. Well, the theology pit, as opposed to the pit of conception, which are my smaller ones. But I have thought about maybe having discussions with uh, other people as part of the theology pit, uh, bringing other people onto the show and discussing these different things. under if they are of a different denomination. A lot of people don't like to do theology the way I do, um, ironically, and in, in, you know, looking at all different viewpoints and actually representing them. Um, and I may ask them not to do that. I may say, no, I want to hear just your position. And let's make sure that when we are talking about opposing theological views, that I'm getting them right. And I know that you can't just pick one person and say, like, you can't go to a Lutheran pastor and say, you're going to talk about Lutheranism. And I just want to hear about Lutheranism and what Lutherans believe, because it depends. I mean, are they from the ELCA? Are they from the Missouri Synod? Like, you know, even within Anglicanism, like, you know, are they Episcopalians? What Synod are they from? Like, you know, it, it depends on how conservative or how liberal or whatever. So those sort of things would be defined that, you know, I would ask them, are you from a more conservative? Are you from a more liberal persuasion? Like, what are you, what are you from? And I think that that'll make the theology pit much more fruitful in what we're doing. 
So um, those are just, you know, kind of thoughts I have. If, if you want to let me know about them, you can email me at Samson at SamsonStick.com. Don't forget to like my uh, Facebook page if you haven't already. If you've just picked up this feed from somewhere else, go to Facebook and look at The Theology Pit, and you'll be able to find that there. Usually my postings in The Theology Pit have something to do with the podcast, The Theology Pit podcast. So it's just... A way some people learn, you know, visually, and some people learn, you know, audibly. And it's a way for me to take a concept of what I've been talking about and, you know, put it there so you can go and, and look at it, you know, because sometimes I'll talk and I'll go through something real fast. And I'm trying not to, but if I do, yeah, that's kind of what that's there for. Um, I'm going to try blogging more also and getting some of this stuff out in, in, you know, a feed where you can actually read it. But, um, Today, let's hop into the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is a really interesting one because the articulation of the Trinity is greatly misunderstood. Um, The relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit a lot of people have different ideas, and sometimes they're bad ideas, but a big part of it really centers on who and what Jesus is. If he is actually God, um, sometimes this is difficult to explain and to express to people who are outside of the faith because they don't understand the connotations of the words that are being used. Um, When, you know, Jesus says, Uh, before Moses was, I am. A lot of people have a hard time understanding that he is identifying himself with Yahweh. Um, Whenever Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved in the book of Romans, um, people are used to Jesus being called Lord, but not associating that with Yahweh of the Old Testament, where um, in uh, in Romans, Paul's uh, looking back in the book of Joel, um, of the Old Testament, where Joel says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He's using that exact same phrase for Christ. But when we understand who and what Christ is, that that becomes the issue. Because some have said that, well, Jesus is just a great teacher. Like, that's all that he was. He was just a man who was just a great teacher. And as we saw from former podcasts, Jesus was more than a man to people around the early church, even if they weren't Christians. And this is where you got the docetists from that said, well, he only appeared to be a man because the things he did was so great. This whole concept of him being a man and not being God didn't come about until later. And at the Council of Nicaea, and we talked about this a little in the last podcast, the the issue wasn't, um, you know, what does scripture say, but what have you been taught? What have you been told? You are the disciples of the, the disciples. What has been taught to you? What has been passed down? The meaning of what scripture says, what, what is that? Um, is Jesus of the same substance as God or is he similar substance as God? And they came to say, well, he is of same substance. He is homoousios rather than similar substance, homoousios. And the way that um, uh, people uh, understand Christ is the way that they're going to understand the Trinity. Because if he is not of the same substance, then we go from being monotheists, meaning believing in one God, to 
well, kind of tritheist, meaning three gods. But or we could go into a henotheism like the um, the Jews of the Old Testament did uh, before um, the uh, Maccabean revolt and this sort of thing. And henotheism is that you believe that there are many gods, but there is only one that's the greatest God. And that was Yahweh. And so they were uh, henotheistic in that way, not not monotheistic. After the destruction of the temple, um, Antiochus, Epiphanes IV, and all that stuff, they became fiercely monotheistic after that, which is what um, makes the idea that Jesus is God such a rub against like what they were thinking. But um, people viewed him as a prophet, a, a man of God, which is kind of difficult to say, you know, well, he's saying he's a great teacher. Jeez, he claimed to be God. He said a lot of crazy stuff. He's kind of an insane person. If, if you just look at it, if he wasn't God, he was, he was insane. Um, I mean, he would say things like I have angels, my angels are going to do this. You know what? Like I have the power to forgive sins. What? What are you talking about? You have the power to forgive sins. Like, you know, that I will raise myself up. I mean, Dude, okay, you're starting to talk a little nuts there. You know, what's going on with that? Um, so, or he could have just been a liar. Like, he could have just been, like, saying all these things, totally lying about it. But um, it wasn't until later on in history that people started saying, well, Jesus was just a man. When you get, you have to get pretty far away. Um, so when we look at Jesus and what people believe that... Um, Jesus was okay. And, and, and who he was and what he actually is. Um, I got, I, I paused the recording here for a second. Cause I thought that this would be kind of an interesting place to read from the Quran and what it says. So I went and got my Quran off the shelf here and I, I wanted to bring out what the Quran says about Christ and what the Quran says about the Trinity. Now the Quran was written, um, by, uh, Muhammad in, the 7th century roughly it was it was written by one person and then arranged over a period of time um and you know and 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 put together um there are stories of other Qurans that didn't agree with the official Quran um, that, that people use and those were taken from them and burned and, you know, that sort of thing. Now, my Quran is a, um, a, a translation and it has commentary in it. I, I really like this Quran for that, uh, that fact. But it was um, it, it's by Abdullah Yusuf Ali. And um, I, I think it's done really, really well. Um, the. Uh, the um, the commentary in it's very very good. It talks about where they they would get these ideas from, where Muhammad got these ideas from. And when you're reading through the commentary and you see what the Quran has to say about um, about Christians, okay, and about where they um, get these ideas from on what Christianity is, that it's. It, it's a big reason why they say that the gospels have been polluted, why, you know, the gospels are not truly what they say, because they take a lot of the Gnostic writings, a lot of the Gnostic gospels that we'll get into at a later time when we go through bibliology. And they would read through those and there were different ideas. There were conflicting ideas. There were odd ideas. Um, when we get into Nestorianism, I'll bring this back up in, in uh, what Nestorianism taught. But that was, uh, you know, a big primary thing on... Um, as an influence on this uh, concept 
uh, within the, the Quran. Then um, that's why I really like this uh, translation that I have with, with the footnotes in it and, you know, with the commentary. I think it's just really well done. Um, but if we look at uh, Surah Nisa 4, uh, number 157, it talks in here uh, about, um, about, about Jesus um, and about, about Mary and like what's going on um, that Christians believe in like what they say and um, you know, this sort of thing, this, this, this covenant that they have and like, you know, all, all this stuff that's going on. Okay. And how they have, because of this, Christians have incurred divine displeasure, as it says in, uh, in 155 and that they reject the faith. Um, in 156, um, that they, and we utter against Mary, uh, a grave and false charge against Mary. Um, and here's where it starts in, uh, uh, 157. So this is, um, Surah Nisa, uh, chapter four, I guess we would call it, uh, verses, um, 157 through, uh, 159. It says, um, uh, that they say that, uh, let me try that again. 157. That they said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of God, but they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow for the surety that they killed him not. Nay, God raised him up unto himself, and God is exalted in power wise. There is none of the people of the book, but must believe in him before his death. And on the day of judgment, he will be a witness against them. So right here, this whole idea that Christians have about Jesus dying on the cross and being resurrected, and that this is the the heart of the gospel, this proves that you know, Jesus is God because he claimed that he would raise himself up, that, you know, what he was, that what he was saying will be validated by God because of the resurrection that we will know that what he's saying to be true. And the Quran goes right at this and says, no, you know what? He wasn't even crucified. That's what we're saying. So this is tough for, um, Muslims because it's a historical, fact that Jesus was crucified. Um, you have not only the, the writings of the new Testament, the 27 books that, you know, discuss this, that are, this is the central theme of all of them, but you have writings outside of them also that talk about Jesus being crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is not a historical, um, I don't know, uh, opaqueness within it, I guess. Um, now when you get into the concept of the resurrection, that's where people say, ah, it's people don't raise from the dead. That's an impossibility. We don't believe that. So, okay. You know what? That's more understandable, but for somebody to say, there's no proof that Jesus was even crucified. A lot of people today are saying that's going to be a harder sell, but that's exactly what the Quran says. And that makes it difficult for not insulting the Quran, which I've just done by saying that it's wrong. 
Okay, I have just insulted the Quran. I should, according to the Quran, I should be put to death. I am an unbeliever. I am an infidel. I have insulted the the Quran. I should be put to death. And I'm well aware of this. Okay, I've had talks on these passages before of the Quran. I am very well aware of it. And what's interesting is when you read through the Quran, it's very polemic. It is uh, high, highly argumentative in, uh, in, in everything. It's a, it's a very interesting read. Um, but if we we've jump ahead a little bit here to uh, Surah Nisa chapter 4 again, um, verses 171 through um, 173, and it'll, yeah, it'll go on a little bit further than that too, I, um, I believe. But um, I want to read this to you starting in, uh, in 171. Let me back up, make sure I'm not missing any of it. Um, it says, O people of the book. And now when it uses a phrase, um, people of the book, uh, it's talking to um, usually Christians and Jews. But this is going to focus probably more on Christians. You'll see in the content. But Christians and Jews are called people of the book. They say that this is where you get your religion from, because this is where uh, Muslims get their religion from, from the book. And I'll make the argument in future podcasts when we get into bibliology and we get into stuff like that, that um, the New Testament came from Christianity. Christianity did not come from the New Testament. We did not have a writing that was dropped in front of us. We read it and got a burning in the bosom, like the Mormons would say, or something like that, that we just knew that it was from God and we knew it was true and we believed it. We wrote down accounts of what happened and that's how we got it. So there were Christians before there was a Bible. So Christianity without the Bible, the full Bible is actually a possibility. It's not an impossibility. So it starts out in 171. O people of the book, commit no excesses in your religion, nor say of God ought to be but the truth. Jesus Christ, or it says, sorry, Christ Jesus, the son of Mary was no more than an apostle of God and his word, which he bestowed on Mary and a spirit proceeding from him. All right. Now that's interesting. Because here you have the Trinity, okay? They, they believe that what we are saying is that Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, who, and this is a parenthetical statement, uh, was parenthetical, no more than, okay, so it was an apostle of God and his word, which he bestowed on Mary, and a spirit proceeding from him. Now, when we get into, you may be thinking that, looking at that going, so wait, what's all that mean? Well, when we get into the Nicene Creed and we discuss uh, the, the wording of that, um, you know, the Holy Spirit being God and with it, who proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son, he's both worshiped and glorified. That's where this is coming from. And that's, that's a discussion we're going to have on the filioque clause also that was added in uh, Constantinople in 381. But um, th- that it's echoing this, okay? So it's saying that, you know, we are actually saying that the Trinity is Jesus as God and the spirits and Mary's kind of getting mixed in there. So let me continue on with it. I'm going to start back at the beginning of it and I'm going to read through. Hopefully you'll have that doctrinal understanding of Christians. And, and as we read through with, with this, okay. So it says, O people of the book commit no excesses in your religion, nor say of God, but the truth. Jesus, the son of Mary, Christ Jesus, the son of Mary was no more than an apostle of God. And his word, which he bestowed on Mary and a spirit proceeding from him, 
So believe in God and his apostles. Say not Trinity. Detest. It would be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. To him belonging all things in heavens and on earth. And enough is God as a disposer of affairs. Christ disdaineth not to serve and worship God, nor do the angels, those nearest to God, those who disdain his worship and are arrogant. He will gather them all together unto himself to answer. But those who believe and do deeds of righteousness, he will give their due reward and more out of his bounty. But those who are disdainful and arrogant, he will punish with a grievous penalty, nor will they find besides God any to protect or help them. Those are pretty strong words, okay? So in understanding the Trinity, here is what the um, uh, the Muslims are saying. Here's what the, the Quran says. And it, it continues on. I want to read one more part uh, out of the Quran, one more section out of the Quran before we jump into the doctrine of the Trinity here. Okay, so we move along to what would be the, uh, the next chapter, I suppose, the um, Surah Madiyah. Uh, chapter five, uh, verses, um, uh, 72, I guess. Yeah. 70, uh, seven, let's go to 71 and then we'll go through, um, 72, 73, um, and, uh, 74, 75, kind of looking at these real quick as we're walking through them, but okay. Um, maybe we'll go back to 70 here. Um, now nah, we'll start at 71. Okay, here we go. Um, they thought there would be no trial for punishment, so they became blind in death. Yet God, in mercy, turned to them. Yet again, many of them became blind in death. God sees well all that they do. They do blaspheme, who say, God is Christ, the son of Mary. But said Christ, O children of Israel, worship God, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with God, God will forbid him the garden and the fire will be his abode. There will be, there will be for the wrongdoers be of no help. They do blaspheme who say God is one of three in a Trinity for there is no God except one God. If they deist or if they desist not from their word of blasphemy, Verily, a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. Why turn they not to God to seek his forgiveness? For God is oft giving most merciful. Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Many were the apostles that passed away before him. His mother was a woman of truth. They had both to both eat their daily food. See how God doth make his signs clear to them. Yet see in what ways they are deluded away from the truth. Say, will ye worship besides God something which hath no power either to harm or benefit you? But God, he it is, all heardeth and knoweth all things. Say, O people of the book, exceed not in your religion the bounds of what is proper trespassing beyond the truth nor follow the vain desires of people who went wrong in times gone by, who misled many and strayed themselves from 
the even way. So that is what the Quran has to say about the Trinity and about Christ. Okay, so from this period to, you know, uh, from this period of the uh, 4th century to the 7th century, this argument of Jesus being God has played out. But before this you know, time, the argument was Jesus being a man. Because the people who were there, the people who saw this stuff, the people who attested to this stuff, they were arguing there was no way he could be a man. Because of our worldview. But when you have a different worldview, as the Muslims do, they look back at that and say there is no way he could be a god. Because there can only be one god. Um, Plato made this argument, too. That if you have many gods, you really don't have any gods at all. There can only be one god, necessarily. If you have a bunch of gods, well, whichever one is the strongest, that's the true god. Everyone else is just lesser gods or you know, like super people or, or you know, super beings or whatever. What they aren't is god. Um, this is the concept of the greatest conceivable being. So when we jump into the Trinity here, and we're, we're going to look at how the church you know, kind of struggled with you know, these, these things. And one of the first is this concept with Christ of adoptionalism. Okay. And this adoptionalism, when, you know, when it, when it comes is that Jesus was, you know, a, a, a person, a human being who at his, uh, baptism, Okay, he was adopted by God and the logos of God indwelled in him. Okay, this is where it, you know, his, along with who and what he was, it kind of went, you know, in, into him. Okay, Um, the logos and the Holy Spirit are both impersonal forces of God uh, seen in in adoptionalism. Um, This was held by... um, yeah, Paul of Samosota, who was a, a bishop of um, Syria, or uh, Syrian Antioch in um, uh, 260. Um, and this was um, condemned at a synod of uh, Antioch in uh, 268. Again, you had these times of persecution, and in between these times of persecution, when things were kind of down, you had time that we could think about these things and exactly what Jesus was and, and how he is. And why would somebody want to hold to adoptionalism? I mean, what what is the benefit of it? Well, when you look at the recapitulation view of the atonement and saying Jesus had to be human 100% in order to represent us in body, soul, spirit, mind, physical, everything, everything that we are, he had to be necessarily. We can't get around that. Okay. So how then do we explain that he's also God? Well, the God part of him was inserted into him. It was this logos. And remember, we talked about the word logos um, also in, I think, the second uh, theology pit and what logos meant, this, this emanation, this divine speech from God, this, this uh, something, you know, uh, coming from him, Gnostic philosophy, okay, was is is really you know coming in here, Gnostic thought, okay. So, what you then have is 
not this understanding of three rulers or something like that, you know, of, of what's going on, but just that you're almost getting into more of a, 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 a panentheistic view that God is inside of his creation. Okay. There's everything is God to a degree and God is, you know, within his creation, but specifically within his creation through the, the logos and through, uh, through Christ. And this brings us to this concept of modalism. Okay. Modalism is belief that God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit are different expressions of the one true God, uh, different manifestations. Okay. Um, so you would have this understanding. Think of it like this, that there's a one person play that's going on. Okay. But there are three characters and the person to represent these three different characters are putting on three different hats. Okay. So you, when you have it like this with these three different hats and, as the person put on the hat of the father, the hat of the son, or the hat of the Holy Spirit, depending on what was happening. And they would say, see, the Old Testament, the hat of the father was worn. In the gospel time, the hat of the son was worn. And now, post-resurrection, we have, the, in the church era, we have the hat of the Holy Spirit that's being worn. It's all one God, okay? And it's, but it's dynamic. And this is called dynamic monarchianism, okay? It's denying the, the unity but it is expressing the uh, the separateness of the of the, um, uh, the 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 personalities. It's like a it's a tritheism in a way um, that there is one person with 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 three names. So you're getting this type of of, of modalism here um, that that's occurring. And I I sorry I skipped ahead. I had what's called a parablepsis where your eyes kind of go down to the nose before. So that dynamic monarchianism is, is different than what we're talking about right now. Modalism. Modalism is that there is, there is only one being in three different forms that it can take, but it's never these three forms at the same time. Okay. Um, Sibelius was a proponent of this, um, it, this has also been called, uh, Patropassianism. Remember we talked about the passion of the Christ and what it was. Well, this is, um, Patra, think patristically, this is the father who is suffering on our behalf and the father is going through the passion, but he's doing it in the mode of the son. This is like a modalistic monarchianism, um, that we, we have going on. Opponents were uh, Tertullian and Hippolytus. Remember, Tertullian is the one who coined the term uh, Trinity, that word, to describe um, what we believe about, about God, the, the nature of God. Um, so you had this one person now, this hypostasis with three names, that Christ is equal to the Father, is equal to the Holy Spirit. But when we move on to monarchianism, you get this dynamic monarchianism and then you get modalistic monarchianism. Okay. And I know these words are coming at you kind of fast and it's like, Oh, this is going to get, I got to keep all this stuff straight. So think of this modalism is that there is one God. Okay. What the, what, what the Quran was speaking about and what the Bible speak speaks about. Behold, O Israel, the Lord, your God is one, um, from Deuteronomy six. Um, and then the Quran, the Muslims are saying God is one. Okay. There is only one God. This would be a understanding of 
Instead of saying that you are a monotheistic Trinitarian, you would say that you are a monotheistic Unitarian, okay? That there is only one God with one person, one personality, okay? That's modalism, that there are different modes. There's one what with three different hats or three different, you know, um, like think the actor on the play, the actor in a, a three, three-person play, okay? That's modalism, different modes, when we get into monarchianism, think of a monarch, okay? Think of like a kingdom, okay? So you have now God the Father, which is the greatest, okay? And then subordinately, subordinationally, subordinate, he has two subordinates below him, the Son and the Holy Spirit, okay? So there isn't this one unity. We're denying the unity. We're saying that there are three gods in a sense. So we're denying the unity, but we're keeping the separation of the persons here. And we talked about a little bit just you know, a couple minutes ago, the problematic thing that you have with that. But this is where the argument of what exactly Jesus is, is he of the same substance or similar substance? If you're going to hold to a um, dynamic monarchianism, okay, that there are these three that are maybe one in um, agreement, or maybe they are one in their their motives in what they would like to do. Um, the Mormons put forth this argument a lot of times that this is what it is, that Jesus is considered um, to be uh, godlike in this way because he is in the will of the Father and agrees with the Father. And that's what it is. And that's problematic in its own right, because we don't see that in, in the gospel. Uh, whenever he prays in the garden and says, you know, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And he's sweating blood when he's doing it. He doesn't want this to happen. Him not wanting it to happen and God the Father wanting it to happen shows a conflict of wills going on there. But ultimately he says, not my will, but your will be done, which even greater shows that there are these two different desires that are going on at the same time. So that's kind of thrown out. But that is the dyna- dynamic monarchianism. All right. So think of, uh, you know, the monarch, like this is a kingdom. Okay. And then you had a modalistic monarchianism. Okay. And that takes the modalism part in it. And this is where you get the Unitarianism from. Okay. So hopefully we can keep all that straight. Okay. The modalism and then the modalistic monarchianism. Okay. That they, it denies the diversity. Okay. There is only one what? All right. So to simplify this a little bit more, don't think of it as I just explained three different things. Think of it as I explained two different things. Okay. That you have one person who is putting on a three person play. Okay. And then the other one is that you have one book with three protagonists in it. Okay. Three main characters, even though the word protagonist bears the connotation of just one, that you're going to have one major person, but you would have three. So you would have, you know, this understanding of you have this one concept, but these three completely separate beings being in it. Okay. And that would be the dynamic monarchianism. I hope that helps in kind of understanding that without looking at any pictures that you could draw of like three different circles, but one circle is bigger than the other two or something like that. Um, Okay. Now, you, after this, you have, you know, this adoptionalism aspect and then this modalism aspect. Remember, the adoptionalism is that, you know, the logos just went into Jesus and that's what made him divine in, this, in that sense and whatever that meant. 
that that's what set him apart. That's what made him different. And you had this modalism that that occurred, and yet you had these two different types of modalism. The one was the person on the play doing three different characters, and the other one was the one book with the three different characters. One or one story with three different characters, physically three different characters. Um, now you move into what's called Arianism, okay? And Arianism is the belief that um, Christ is not God, but a creation of God the Father, and that He has a genesis, He has a begottenness in eternity past. So before there was time and space, before there was physicality, before anything else was created, the very first thing that was created was Jesus. Okay, Christ was created first, and then through him, all things were created. Okay, so he was sort of like this stepping stone type thing. These that by doing this, the Arians could fight then against, and I say Arians, and we think like Aryan nation, but no, um, Arius is the, um, the a presbyter in Alexandria. Okay, uh, so. When we say Arian, we're talking about Arius and his followers and his belief, not like Arian nation type stuff. So Arianism is not, you know, the the understanding that of Iran and the the Nazis or anything like that. I, I guess to Western ears, this is going. It, it sounds like it's, anybody that you know lived past the 1930s that the sound of that word is going to maybe carry that different connotation. But that's not what we're talking about here. Um, but he fought modalism because he would say that, well, no, there weren't these three expressions of God, okay? And Christ was not an expression of God. Christ was actually created by God. So that was his argument against modalism. And his argument against adoptionalism was that Jesus didn't become the Christ at some point in his baptism or some point in his life, he had always been before eternity. Okay. So his Genesis was before everything. It's not that he was a, I don't know, sort of a, a, a mix. It would be like, um, it's not like you had Peter Parker and then Peter Parker lived his life and he was a totally normal kid. And then when he got bit by the spider, he became Spider-Man because he got these powers. Okay, that's what adoptionalism is saying, that Jesus got bit by the Lagos spider and became the Christ. Okay, Aries is saying that's nonsense. Okay, no, he was the Christ beforehand. Okay, but he was created. He was the first being created. Okay, and then all other creatures in heaven and earth were created after him. Okay, and... You had what was called um, subordinationism, okay? And within subordinationalism or subordinationism, however you subordinate, it's, they are subordinate, okay? You have what's called a functional subordinationism, which functions that, the, that Christ and the Holy Spirit is functionally subordinate to the Father, okay? Now, you have an ontological understanding and a functional understanding of this subordinationalism ontologically is that the subordinates of the being of, um, Christ and the Holy spirit are ontologically ontos means being okay. In their being, in their essence, in what makes them and what they are. Okay. So 
the Holy Spirit and Christ are ontologically, their being is subordinate to the being of the Father. And from this, you get the concept of an adoptionism. You get the concept of an Arianism, and you get the concept of any type of Trinitarian sub, uh, subordinationalism, like, like that time, like that type of thing where, you know, you always have the one that's greater, that is then imposing on the ones that are lesser in being, okay? A functional subordination would be that within the construct of the Godhead, of the Trinity, that there are a submissive function that is going on, okay? That they are submitting to one another voluntarily. And it's sort of like what's been called like the, the, the Trinitarian dance within the Trinity that the son submits to the father, the Holy spirit submits to the son and the father, the father gives all power and glory to the son and the father and the son, um, are very protective and of giving of their uh, themselves completely to the Holy spirit. It's this kind of inner working dance that's going on, but it's a functional subordination, um, if we were to look at it in a human example, okay, you would look at somebody that holds the position of the presidency in the United States. Functionally, they have a superior role than I do as a lowly theological podcaster here. But ontologically, we're exactly the same, okay? That the concept of us being, he is not a greater human being than I am or something different than a human being because of his role. His role functionally is different from my role. Okay. So that's how we're looking at it in a way. It's a very sloppy understanding. The problem with understanding the Trinity is that we don't have anything that really states like what exactly the the Trinity, the Trinity is like this. The Trinity is like that. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. For example, people would say things like, okay, the Trinity is like an egg, all right. You have the shell, you have the white part, and you have the yolk. And that's like the Trinity. It's one egg, but there are three different parts. And we would look at that and say, no, that's exactly what the Trinity is not like. Because what you have described is actually three different um, things, okay? That the shell, you don't eat the shell. The shell is of a different substance, Okay. The white part is a different substance and the yolk is a different substance. Even though they are together in, and they make up one egg, they are of three different substances. This is a concept of um, a, a tritheist view that there are three gods and this is more of a dynamic monarchianism that you would have three, maybe one is greater than the other, but they're all you know together in one. But our God is not three things that came together, three different beings that come together to make up one thing. 
it he is one thing. Okay, he's one being. There is one one being and three persons or personalities or consciousnesses. The um, traditional articulation of it is that there is one God who exists in three persons. But that word person that's being used, it is being used in the sense of a consciousness, that there are three consciousnesses. Because when we think of person, we're thinking of something outside of us, something separate of us, like some there's another person over there and, and it pulls up a wrong image. Um and that's why that that understanding doesn't work on what we believe as Christians God to be, unlike what you know the um, the Muslims say and what Muhammad said in the Quran that we actually think that there are these three gods that come together or there are three things that were created that are then added in addition to God that that sort of thing that there can only be one God which we agree to ontologically the being there can only be one, but this concept of consciousness, there are three consciousnesses. There are three personalities within that. A a basketball has has a, a being has ontos. It, it it has a physicality. It is it is ontologically a thing. It has being. If you don't believe that, I'll throw it at your head, bounce it off, and then you'll say, "Oh yeah, that actually did have some type of being." But it doesn't have personality. It doesn't have personhood, and that's the difference. Now, another bad analogy is that God is like the sun. Okay, the Father is the sun. The rays are like the, um, I should say sun S U N rather than S O N. So the father is like the S U N, the sun, the S O N, the sun is like the rays that are coming from it. Okay. And the spirit is like the heat and light. Okay. So it's one sun, but three different expressions or emanations. Now, I think you're starting to look at these things and saying, wait a minute, one was like a dynamic monarchianism. And this illustration here, this really sounds like a, a modalist that you have one thing that's in three different ways or three different parts. Well, sort of, but not exactly a modalism. It would be more of a um, tritheism again. Okay. Uh, well, let's move into dihydrogen monoxide. How about that? Um, water, good old H2O. Okay. Um, you have three different parts that make up one thing. So three different elements. So you have the Holy Spirit of the hydrogen molecule, the Father is a hydrogen molecule, and the Son is an oxygen molecule. And they all come together and they make one thing that's water. But again, you have this problem of these one things, you know, uh, all these things coming together to make one thing. And that's not what God is. God is only one thing. God is simple. He is simple in the fact that he is one being, okay? Not, not made, God's not made up of parts. He's just one thing. And that's the simplicity of the concept of, of Godness and of the concept of the Trinity. Um, some people would say, look at, look at water in its different states, okay? You have one w- concept of water, a liquid, but it can be ice, it can be liquid, and it can be steam. Okay. And those are three different aspects. Well, this is that understanding of that modalism right there. You know, puts on the hat of the ice, the hat of the liquid and the hat of the steam. Okay. And some people said, well, what about us? We're created in the image of God. Doesn't that mean that we are like God in that sense? We are reflective of God. I mean, look at my body. Okay. I'm one person, 
but I have a body, I have a spirit, and I have a soul. Or you could say I have a body, a soul, and a mind if you want to you know, change mind for spirit or spirit and soul if you want to change them out and say mind, however you want to, however you want to say it. Um, there's another problem, though, is that there's three parts. So if you lose your soul, do you stop being a person? If you lose your body, do you stop having personhood? That becomes the issue, and we would say, well, no, we don't see that in Scripture at all, that we are a body-soul unity. Death is never understood as a succession of being. It's understanding as a fraction that has taken place, a separation, a distance. Um, So this idea of one person being like the Trinity is is separate because our, our being, our ontos, is actually made up of different parts. Now, conditional unity, we would say that for us to be whole, they need to be together, but totally different um, than what we're saying that God is as a triune God. Well, some people would say a crowd. You have one crowd, but many different people, individual personalities make up that one crowd. Again, many parts, and that's the uh, problem that that you have with it. So the best way to say it is to say that the Father is God, the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father and the Father is not the Son. It's easier to say what God is not in this sense than what God is. Okay. And that's the doctrine of the Trinity. And I know you're saying, oh, well, I'm glad you straightened that out. That's clear as mud. I'm so glad. I know. I know. It's just easier for us to say, what God is not than what he is. And we can apprehend this concept of God, but we can't comprehend it. And that's okay. We don't have to be able to comprehend everything, but we can full, we can apprehend it. That scripture says that there is only one God. And scripture also demonstrates to us that the son is God. He proved that in his death, burial, and resurrection, in his life, and what he did, and what he said. And then he said, one will come who's greater than I am, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is seen to be God. We see that in the book of Acts, um, when you have people um, lying about um, what what they were doing and the, and the money that they were giving and stuff. And, and you know, Peter says, you know, you're not lying to men, but you are lying to God. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit that you are grieving the Holy Spirit. Only a person can be grieved. But in saying that, Scripture is then going on to say the Holy Spirit is also God, that Jesus considers the Holy Spirit greater than himself. He's he's humbled himself in that way in in, in saying that. It's that functional subordination. Um, So that is with the Trinity. Now, when we come along to this understanding of Jesus and who and what Jesus is, this becomes necessary again for salvation, not only in understanding who he is in relation to God, but who he is in relation to uh, the Holy, the Holy spirit, who he is in relation to the father, but who he is in relation to us. Because if Jesus is God, what exactly does that mean for his representation of us? Okay. Now you had, I'm going to go through a couple Christological heresies real fast. Um, Apollinarianism was that, you know, you had this idea, it's sort of like adoptionalism, um, that this divine logos was put in the human body. So think of it like this. You have a God in a bod, okay? You have Jesus walking around 
with a God mind. Okay. But he has a human body. So that's how he was able to know things. That's how he was able to, um, you know, do all these miracles, how he was able to know certain things and, and all this stuff. And so he's walking around he doesn't have a human mind. He has a God mind. Okay. So it's not that he was adopted in the sense that something was added to him, but from birth, from conception, he was God in a bod. Okay. He always knew everything. He always had everything, uh, at, at, at his fingertips. Okay. Now there are problems that this lends to because there are times in the new Testament where Jesus says he doesn't know things. And there are times when he doesn't do things that, that he can. And the biggest problem is if this type of Jesus dies on the cross, according to the recapitulation view of the atonement, what has been recapitulated? What has been represented? Jesus is the second Adam. Adam being the federal head of humanity, Jesus being the second one. What is he redeeming? Well, he's redeeming the physical. If he doesn't have a mind and to a lesser degree doesn't have a soul, then he can't redeem our mind and our soul. So the cross then breaks down. His, the redemption power breaks down. All that's being helped is our physical and not anything else. And even if you say that, well, you know, okay, he does have some type of, of soul, but he doesn't have that mind. Well, still, he's not representing all of us. And it's not possible for us to be redeemed with a Apollinarian uh, Jesus. So Gregory of uh, Nizanzus, I hope I'm saying that right, said that what God has not assumed is not saved. So if God did not assume a mind, a spirit, an immaterial part, well, then that is not saved. Now, I brought up Nestorian, Nestorius before, and Nestorianism, um, talking about the Quran and what Muslims believe. Now, this is what Muslims believe that Christians believe about Jesus, is this uh, particular heterodoxy. That's what these, let's call these, not, not necessarily heresies. That sounds bad. We call them heterodoxies. Um, hetero meaning opposite or other. So these other beliefs. Uh, doxy. When we get into like, when we talk about like the doxologies, um, that's what we're talking about. Um, the doctrines, the, those sort of things, what we believe. Um, so heterodoxy, uh, orthodoxy, right belief, orthopraxy, right practice, heterodoxy, other belief. Um, we talk about creeds, that just means I believe credo. I believe uh, credo et intelligam, uh, belief seeking understanding, or I believe in order to understand. Um, as opposed to, well, not as opposed, but in addition to uh, the fetus uh, quiron intele- in, intelligam, fetus quiron intelligam, which is uh, faith-seeking uh, understanding. But anyways, that's the side note. Totally went off on a rabbit trail there. Sorry. Nestorianism was this understanding that that Jesus was fully man and fully God, okay? But these natures were united in purpose and not in person, 
Okay. Which means that you had these two Jesuses. Okay. You had this human Jesus and this divine Jesus. And as you're reading through the New Testament, you're kind of seeing the difference. Okay. When Jesus seems to know something about someone. Okay. Um, Think of the uh, woman at the well in John chapter four. Okay, he knows about her, and like like a prophet does, and she's like, "Whoa, well, that's that's the divine Jesus." But when they say, you know, Jesus, when will you return? He says, "No one knows when the Son of Man will return. Only the Father knows. Not even the Son knows." Oh, well, that's him speaking out of his humanness right there. You know, um, this was you know uh, uh, was condemned as as the other ones were um, because the problem becomes, well, who died on the cross. Okay. Was it the human person or the divine person? Because the divinity of Christ being necessary, uh, for his sacrifice to be worth more than anything in the world, to be the highest sacrifice that would be possible was necessary, just as necessary as the human person. And fully human. And that becomes another problem when you have this whole um, God and Abad thing, this God mind, you know? I mean, you could say that when Jesus died on the cross, he could just turn off his pain receptors and he just wouldn't feel it. So he wouldn't go through that full suffering. And that's, that argument could be made. Um, so with Apollinarianism, they would shoot that down. And with this Nestorianism, um, that would also happen. Um, now, Nestorius was... Eastern and, and the Eastern churches would kind of go off like more towards like, um, Russia, like that area, um, and, and going down. So, so when the, when the Muslims came through in the seventh century in their, in their conquests, um, the Christians that they were coming in contact with had more of an historious bent to them. And so, we get this understanding when reading through the Quran that this is what the Christians believe. And they kind of think that the Christians are crazy in this sense. Well, was Jesus God or was he human? Yes. Well, which was it? Well, sometimes he was human, but sometimes he was God. And they'd say, what? You're crazy. That doesn't even make sense, you know? And it, it fizzled out. But then the next one that came along was called monophysitism. Okay. And an alternate name would be Eutychianism because of uh, Eutyches, uh, Eutychius, who, um, he was a preacher that said, okay, Jesus was fully man and he was fully divine. Okay. He was both, but that they commingled in a sense and created this new thing that was humane. Okay. So he is divine nature and his human nature integrated with each other and it kind of formed a new nature. Okay. And so there's only one nature, but it's humane. The problem with this is that who could he represent when you think of this recapitulation view of the atonement? Well, only other humans. There were only other humans that were around. That, that, that's all he could die for. He couldn't die for humans and because he was more than just human. He was a mix now. He was this new thing. Um, so that's where the problem becomes in, in monophysitism. Now, at Chalcedon, this gets really, really defined because... You have all these different heresies that we've been talking about, all these different understandings of Christ not being human or being like a demigod or not being fully human, or you notice that there's always a problem. We don't have the problem of Jesus not being divine 
only the uh, the Judaizers uh, and the Ebionites, the small group at, at, at that time, the Jews who just saw him as just a prophet, had you know that problem, but they were a very small and select group and not you know part of the church at all. Um, who you know, would say this and and. A lot of people said, well, yeah, of course he's a great prophet. And, you know, the, um, the Muslims would say, yes, he's just a great prophet. So they're in, in that line. But a lot of people were saying he wasn't human. He couldn't be human. Look at what he did. And this is why the Ebionites never got traction, because it was just like, no, he can't be human. He couldn't be just a, a prophet. Look at him. And we know from Stoic philosophy and Gnostic thought that he wasn't and that sort of thing. So I'm going to read to you what um, the the definition of Chalcedon was, okay? And and listen to the wording. And I'm going to go back through like some of this and and pull out some stuff because there's going to be things that are going to jump out of Protestants big time, big time. Anybody who's anti-Catholic is going to see issues with what I'm about to read, okay? So just take a listen to this. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all of one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance uh, with the Father, uh, which would be that homoousios from um, um, Nicaea, Okay, uh, as regards as regards to his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us in regards to his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards to his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards to his manhood, begotten for some for us men and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary, the God bearer, one one and the same Christ. Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures. Okay, so we have these two different natures that Jesus is. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, but uh, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son, only begotten God of Word, of the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of Him, and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers that has been handed down to us. Now, this is called the hypostatic union. Okay. Um, the hypostatic union is that Christ is one person who exists forever in two complete natures of God and man. Hypostasis. Um, think of a hypodermic needle. Okay. Uh, hypo means under. Derma, we get from you know, dermatology. So a hypodermic needle is a needle under the skin. So hypostatic, stasis being substance. So hypostasis is under the substance. Okay. Under this is the union. That's the hypostatic union. So underneath the substance, there is the divine, that he is both God and man, truly, at the same time. Let me help you wrap your head around this just a little bit more before I go back to the to this, uh, uh, this creed, this announcement here from uh, this definition from Chalcedon and understanding what Jesus is like. If you've ever seen the movie Avatar, okay, um, Jake Sully, in the movie Avatar, who is he in that movie? 
is he that nine foot tall blue creature running around or is he the guy in the machine? Which is he? Well, he's both. When he's in the machine, you know, his thoughts and mind, everything like his body's still working. He's still there, but his consciousness is, is in this, this other body, this creature. So he's at the same time, two natures, you know, he is, um, Nobby, I believe is, is what they are. I'd have to go look it up. This is going to be another sci-fi thing I get email on. Okay. So he is, you know, at the same time, this big blue creature and human. Okay. Think of Christ in that way. At the same time, he is fully human and fully divine. Okay. But at the time of his incarnation, and and that means uh, carne in flesh. Okay. So at the time he was in flesh, this hypostatic union, he put aside all of the privileges of deity. Okay, and refused to access them, refused to acknowledge them, relied only on the will of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit for their for him to do anything. Okay. Technically, Jesus never did any miracles. Any miracles that were performed were from the will of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, not of his own power. This is why when the devil went to tempt him, in the, in the wilderness, first thing he said is, change these rocks into bread. Now, if Jesus is divine and he has the power to do that, why doesn't he just do it? The reason why is because we as human beings do not have divine power. Apart from God, we can do nothing. And so therefore, if Jesus was to tap into his deity in order to feed himself or to do anything, he could no longer represent us as human beings. And the cross would have been destroyed. The, the purpose of the cross would have been destroyed. Satan knew this. That's why Satan went after him in, in this way. He went after him in, in the three ways that he tempted Adam. The, um, uh, the, what was it? The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Something like that. So that's why he has these... Um, uh, you know, it, when he's in the, in the wilderness, those are the, the temptations of, of Christ at that time. Um, but think about it this further. He had the ability to access these things. Okay. He, he could do this, but he refused to even knowledge, not even just doing something physical, healings, miracles, um, you know, transforming things, nothing like that. Um, but just in, you know, what was given to him cognitively, was being only from the Father and through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why he said, I don't even know when I'm going to return. Could he have known? Could he have accessed that? Yes, but he didn't. And this is post-resurrection. So even in the resurrection, he is still representing us. He is our federal head, but he's also our, our high priest. And he is our, our, our God. He is both our high priest and our king, and he is still representing us. He is still on our behalf our representation. And so he still is completely submissive to the father and his will and the power of the Holy spirit. And God, the father says, I will put you at my right hand. I give, I, he puts him on the throne. Jesus sits on the throne and the father has submitted that to him. So Jesus does have all that power, but still will still want to do the will of the father and only through the power of the Holy spirit. This is that, that trust and that inner relationship between 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, them being one being with three three persons. So think of the movie Avatar when you're thinking about the hypostatic union of Christ, of what Jesus is. Um, and, and illust- these are where illustrations actually do help. You have two eyes, but one vision. Okay, if that, if that helps also. Um, but going back to the definition of Chalcedon, something that's really jumping out at people is talking about Mary the Virgin. Okay, now whether you believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary or not doesn't matter here. Some people do, some people don't, and through history... Um, I, I honestly, I don't think that it's that big a deal, whether you hold to it or not, I could really care less. Um, personally, I do hold to it, but people who don't, yeah, I see, I see what you mean by it. I see the, the merit of it. Um, I just happen to not agree, but it is not a hill I'm going to fight and die over. If you want to argue with me about whether or not Mary was forever a virgin, it's going to be a one-sided argument. I'm just going to let you vent and say, yes, I already know all that stuff, but I disagree with it. And if you really hear why I disagree with it, I mean, that's a whole nother theology pit. That's a whole nother thing. But I don't think that it really moves the narrative uh, any further, moves our discussion any further in this. But what I will say is that when it comes to salvation, they are calling Mary uh, Theotokos or Theotokos, but I think it's better pronounced Theotokos, which means the God bearer, okay, the mother of God. Roman Catholics call her Mary, the mother of God all the time. And Protestants kind of rail against that because they think for some reason it's lifting up Mary when it's not. I mean, and, and I understand where they're getting that from, because you, when you talk about the veneration of the saints within Roman Catholicism, you have Dulia um, hyper, and Hyperdulia. Uh, Dulia is honor given. Hyperdulia is honor that's given to Mary, but Latria is worship. Um, that's only reserved for God. But a lot of times people can't tell the difference between Dulia and Hyperdulia when it comes to the veneration of the saints. Again, it's another theology pit to, to go over. But calling her the God bearer, okay, the, the mother of God, that's speaking about Christ's humanity and not about Mary. It's pointing to if you believe that Jesus is God, then necessarily Mary is the mother of God. But she, as they are saying, is what's tying him to the human nature, to the physical nature. This is what's bringing him in. This is where, you know, from the father and from his being, he is one substance with the father in regards to his manhood, but in regards to the substance or or, or to his godhood, but in, in, in regards to the substance of his manhood, um, like all of us, his manhood is begotten of Mary. Okay. And so Mary is the mother of God to say she is the mother of Christ and that Christ is fully human because she is fully human. Now, when we get into original sin and we talk about the Immaculate Conception, not only of Christ, but the, also the theory of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, and we get into our Mariology and things like that. Again, it's another theology pit. Um, hopefully, you know, these are all tantalizing little things that people are like, oh, I can't wait to hear that. I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, stay tuned. You know, keep subscribing. If you haven't liked my Facebook page, please do that. Follow along, you know, because um, this stuff, I think, gets really interesting and it gets really fun to, to understand this. But for the sake of salvation and our argument talking about the salvific viewpoint, Jesus has to be fully human. And he is, and this is what uh, Chalcedon is defining, that he is fully human from Mary, meaning that, and if you took a Traducian understanding, that from the parent, you get the body and the soul. You get the body, soul, spirit, mind. You get everything. So that Jesus, they say, does have a reasonable body and soul 
and mind. He is exactly what we are, which is why he can represent us. Okay. And depending on who you are and what you hold this, as far as Orthodox goes, pretty much all of the major denominations in church history agree with Chalcedon, hold to this view. The monophysite view is you have Eastern monophysite churches that may hold to their very small group. And those would be like, um, uh, you know, Coptic uh, Christians like may hold to this Jacobite uh, Armenian ones, not, not like the Armenians, like, um, Jacob Arminius, like his followers, when we, when we get into, uh, the concept of, um, pervenient grace and free will, total depravity, like all that stuff that's going to come later on down the line. When we, when we get into that aspect of how we view our, our salvation and what we view about that. But the point that we're trying to make here is that all major Christian denominations hold to the hypostatic union of Christ and this understanding of what Jesus is and why it's necessary for him to be. But it's harking back. Remember, now we're in the fifth century here, and this is harking back to um, the uh, recapitulation view of the atonement. Okay, this is where a lot of this is coming from, that we need this federal headship. We need this representation. Okay, Um, so you have a lot of times heretical bents within the church. Okay. Not that it's one thing to give lip service to something and it's another to live it out and articulate it. And we talked about that in the very first podcast about justification, that people give lip service that we are justified by faith alone, that they hold to that. But the application of that and the understanding of that is a a totally different thing. Um, so a lot of times, you know, you can have different, um, heretical bents. I don't think I'm going to go through these. I mean, I could talk about what a Roman Catholic's heretical bent might be in the way that they do things in a Lutheran and a Reformed and, you know, what where their heretical bents are. But I kind of find it unnecessary in that, you know, in that, in what we're talking about here. Maybe if we get in, when we get into Christology, we'll really get into that and we'll, we'll dive deeper into that. But as far as salvation goes here, I don't think that that uh, helps us with what we're we're talking about, um, but it's just good to just good to remember that with the Trinity, there's a unity in nature and a diversity in persons. Okay, in Christ, there is a unity in person and a diversity in nature. Okay, so in Christ, there is two whats and one who. In the Trinity, there is one what and three who's. I hope that that helps out with this. Okay. Now, again, it's over an hour. I didn't get to what I wanted to get to when we talk about original sin and free will and getting the Pelagianism. So guess what? We got to push it back for another week. And I think once we get through that and we get through the understanding of how sin has affected us and original sin and what we need to do about original sin, that that after after that is going to be a good jumping off point to get into the governmental view of the atonement, the um, satisfaction view of the atonement, uh, the moral influence theory um, that like happens, uh, you know, when we talk about sin and like, you know, what's going on and and that sort of thing. Um, And then we'll eventually get into the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement. Um, 
and uh, we'll get into the, um, the view of the to- atonement where Christ's death is a, a token sacrifice. Um, this, I mean, there's going to be a lot, but we have to kind of build up this stuff first in how does original sin affect us and how does the fall affect us and the concept of free will. Um, and how that, because all of that's going to work into these next ideas of salvation. And I think it's good to have a, a, a grasp on a lot of this stuff. Now, once again, I didn't get to everything I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about so much more, um, but I don't want to belabor a lot of this stuff. I do want to kind of move on because we're going to be covering more of this stuff in other theology pits when we focus on other aspects of theology. Right now, we're in, just in soteriology. So I thank you very, very much for listening, for subscribing to The Theology Pit um, and and being a part of The Theology Pit. Please tell your friends about this. Um, share it on Facebook. Like it on Facebook. Um, you know, uh, send me emails, samson at samsonstick.com. Um, you can give donations if you like, um, anything. Uh, and if you would like to have me discuss anything, um, even in the format of the the pit of conception, depending on what I'm going to do with this. Um, A lot of these theology pits I'm recording way ahead of time and the pit of conceptions, uh, like when you get them, it's probably been weeks since I've recorded this stuff. So if you do um, send me something, don't feel that I've rejected you. If it's a month goes past or more and you haven't heard me talk anything about it on these uh, podcasts, um, it's just that, uh, it's the way that I, I record them and the way I go about doing it. It kind of, um, helps me in, uh, putting stuff together for you and in studies and, you know, gives me, lets me have a life too, you know, in, in that aspect. But thank you again for listening to the theology pit. Um, I hope that you're enjoying it and I think now is the best time to close down the pit. 